Welcome to episode 145 of the Stepto Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Stepto and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by Michael Vadis, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now in our New York office, by Alan Cohn, formerly head of strategy for DHS, uh, uh, and now in our Washington office. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, uh, and holding the record for returning to Step toe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Why don't we get started? It was a big week for hacking news and uh, by far the biggest hacking news story, as it has been for a few weeks, was uh, Russian hacking the election and President-elect Trump's uh, um Reaction to the intelligence community's uh, decision to uh, uh, be uh, to say with high confidence that they well in most other cases high confidence that they believe that the Russians uh, um, not only did the hacking but deliberately released information uh, with a view uh, at least at the end to helping Donald Trump and hurting Hillary Clinton. Uh, uh, Alan, Michael, uh, I, I, there were a few things I was struck by, uh, but I wondered what you thought was the upshot of all this. Well, what is the upshot? I, I guess it all depends on what the effect is on the president-elect. Um, and it's hard to read from his tweets that it had any effect. I, I uh, want to disagree you know. with you on that. Uh, I, 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 for sure, before the event, he was tweeting, you know, he'd had intelligence in quotes, uh, which I think the press made a little more of than, than they should have. But he clearly, you know, referenced the WMD errors. Uh, uh, he was clearly raising questions about whether the intelligence community had gotten this right. But the statement he put out after the uh, uh, the briefing was very moderate and thoughtful, and probably reflected a lot of uh, collegial discussion. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, sorry, thoughtful. Such <laughs> a Donald Trump tweet, thoughtful. No, no, this was this was uh, a pub. This, this was a statement from the. Uh, 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 from the office of the president-elect or a statement by him. But, he, you know, he says, I, I, I really value the communications or the contribution of the intelligence community, professional staff. Uh, he, he picked up on some things that uh, uh, he thought he heard, which was probably right, that the, uh, the Russians had not hacked the electoral machinery um, and then took a few shots at the uh, – at the DNC for bad security. Yeah, that, that's a very Kellyanne Conway interpretation, I think. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> but I do think the other thing that, 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 the takeaway that I think is merited from the report, and, and maybe it isn't that particular takeaway, is to step back and say, put, put aside whether this benefited one candidate or another, because it seemed, the report seems to focus more on the Russians saw an ability to exploit our process right and took it and and whether and they put aside whether that helped or hurt right. anybody um and that i think is the is the question of course that the report's begging which is are we okay with that right i would clearly can't be okay with that uh, but i do think that that ought to Turn, make this less of a um, partisan issue. Uh, uh, I was struck uh, reading that report, uh, especially when you got back and read the uh, the old 2012 report. Um, that 
this is this has an absolutely an air of a grudge match derived from 2011 when um, there were massive uh, demonstrations against Putin in favor of a real election rather than a fake election uh, uh, that the U.S. government was all over and enthusiastic about. Uh, and uh, um, I think Putin really thought he was at risk of getting ousted uh, and that the U.S. government was behind it all, which it wasn't, I'm sure, uh, but it would have been delighted had it succeeded. So, it, you know, uh, we're going to take the blame for it. And everything he has done since then is payback. And if you look at what he did in 2012, uh, uh RT, then Russia Today, uh, and all of the trolls that they uh, employ were out um, deifying Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and it was the fa- you know, flavor of the month for all of the Russians uh, who were uh, uh, propagandizing in the United States. Uh, uh, and so I think the, the real lesson here is he's going to screw with our election and support whoever he sees as the most anti-establishment uh, uh, candidate, although – he obviously hates Hillary Clinton. Yes, I think he had a he has a special distaste for her. But I think the bigger point is, and I, to build on what you've said, is that I think from his perspective, this is an ongoing conflict. Oh, he's this is keep a doing conflict it. that, and it's a and it's a conflict that he sees joined beyond just what's in the report by by the Georgia conflict, by Crimea. By the by, the color revolutions in uh, in Europe, uh, by our uh, military's tour down the Baltics and the and the NATO's eastern periphery, uh, I would be surprised. I think he would react with surprise to think that we think this just started. Um, and, that, that, and that was to me was that to me was one of the very interesting things about the report is that it puts this in historical context that. This is part and parcel of long-standing Soviet and then Russian uh, information operations. The use of the use of trolls to spread propaganda um, uh, on their own and, and through traditional media outlets. That, um, that, that's the stealing of information and using it to embarrass people. What, what's different is that this was such a such a um, obvious. Uh, Effort to do that in the United States, you know, not just funding the American Communist Party or the sort of things that the Soviets did in the past, but more along the lines of what they've done in Europe and in Ukraine and uh, and in other former Soviet countries. They they now were willing to do in the U.S. and I think that was partly because of the the personal animus toward Clinton and the and the sense that this was payback, as you as you said, Stuart. Um, and I think it was partly the, the fact that they. You know, they thought they could get away with it because there has been such ineffectual response um, from uh, really every administration to uh, Russia's um, operations uh, against us. It's it's been I think it's been a, a bipartisan failure to respond effectively to cyber attacks, and so it's it's no wonder that that Russia feels emboldened to to do more and more. Yeah, I think I mean I I. I... I don't think the Bush administration got many chances uh, 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 to respond to uh, real uh, adventurism uh, from the Russians, uh, but they certainly uh, did not leave us with a secure infrastructure and uh, uh, 
the Obama administration has had the bad luck to be uh, in charge when the Russians got bolder and bolder saying, well, you're going to stop me now? Well, how about now? Oh, how about now? Uh, and we have yet to have a uh, convincing response, and I, I have to say, I don't think that the uh, um, uh, the sanctions are a completely convincing response to this. Uh, if 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 you ask yourself, does this mean that um, Putin will never do this again? I don't think so. And and my, my well, and that's what, and that's the part that worries me about about Trump's response. You know, his his response in his tweets was. You know, well, we really need to get along better with Russia, and anybody who thinks differently is stupid. Um, all right, that's that's you know, <laughs> take that. Whether that's a valid point on its own, it's a bizarre point to make after Russia just interfered with our democratic process. Something I think we all agree should be, uh, we, both parties should be outraged by and be concerned about and want to take steps to prevent from happening again. Again, and Trump has said nothing. To that effect, um, that we need to make sure this doesn't happen again. He's, he's, it's like he wants to reward Putin with, with better relations for, uh, what Russia did. Yeah, in a sense, if, um, if we're throwing pebbles at Russia, you know, Trump's throwing pebbles at us. <laughs> Look, it's not quite that bad, although I don't, I don't love, uh, any of this, uh, uh pro-Russia stuff. Uh, um, the statement that he put out after this was, I want a cybersecurity strategy to make sure nobody can get away with doing this uh, in the first 90 days. Uh, that's that's a good thing to have asked for. Uh, whether it'll be applied against Russia depends. But, you know, the, the Trump administration has to realize that the first major international crisis that produces large demonstration against the president uh, in the streets of the United States are going to get totally supported by uh, uh, Russian operations. And unfortunately, I think that, you know, the, the Russians don't need to meddle like that in the United States again in the near future. They have many opportunities coming in Europe and yeah. elsewhere where we have historically seen deep interests. Yeah. Um, and where, again, that pattern from Georgia forward through the two administrations, as you've said, hasn't really indicated that we have a good solution to that. There was one other takeaway from the report that I thought was interesting, which is that the U.S. government is just way outmatched in the impressionistic social media age of influence. It's not enough to be lobbying Voice of America, you know, broadcasts over the wall anymore. And it's also not good enough to issue these kind of tweety academic reports that I love to write and, and read so yep. much. It's not going to get there anymore. So this report is great and fine and interesting. And we all read it. Um, but it's, inadequate in the face of the types of more sophisticated social media engineering that's laid out in the text of the report. Yeah, we've seen the complete breakdown of what was the Cold War compromise, which is that the U.S. government could uh, aggressively combat uh, Soviet narratives abroad uh, as long as it didn't try to uh, so-called propagandize the American people. And you can understand why people were uneasy about the idea that there would be a big communications machine funded by the federal government to deliver the president's favorite message to Americans. Um, 
we can't the, the the distinction between what you're doing abroad and what you're doing uh domestically is just wiped out uh three quarters of, of the traffic on drudge is to the daily mail as far as i can tell uh and uh and and so we have that has left everybody frozen i mean that's that's a violation of law to propagandize in ways that the americans or the americans are going to see and yet americans are now really on the receiving end of very direct propagandizing by um uh, pretty much every country on the planet. But I think as tempting as it is, I don't think we want to turn to Breitbart as the response to RT or Sputnik or anything else like that. We need to figure out a response that's both going to work in the way that you know we arrange our our values as well as to counter both the narrative and the mechanism. So one of the things that I keep coming back to on occasion when I look at this is the Foreign Agent Registration Act, which actually once said, foreign if you're uh, releasing foreign propaganda inside the United States, you have to label it as such. You have to say, I'm, I'm an agent of the Russian government. Uh, now, anybody who thinks that RT is not an agent of the Russian government is smoking something. They say, oh, we don't have to register because we're funded through an NGO, which probably has something to do with the U.S. government thinking that its funding of NGOs should be uh, beyond reproach. Um, but I think we ought to go back and take another look at whether we've really used that law or need to update that law so that if somebody's releasing a story that is generated by other countries, uh, we get to see it uh, and, and, and know what the provenance is. And then we need to be ready for the inevitable response by both the Russians and the Chinese and others about CNN or the New York Times. Or, oh, but they're or already elsewhere. doing that. And, Which and, they are. Exactly, exactly the point. I mean, the, the, the idea that if we don't do it, they won't do it, 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 it that's over. In fact, one of the, the news items this week is that the, uh, the Chinese government has persuaded Apple to dump the New York Times. So, you know, I, I don't often stick, stick up for the New York Times, but I will here. Uh, you gotta, you gotta know how to, uh, prioritize uh, your adversaries. Uh, this is, this was a, a, a sleazy sellout on the part of, uh, uh, Apple, which took that brave stand for civil liberties when uh, it was easy because they were just picking on Jim Comey. But now that it's hard, they just quietly slink into the night. Uh, and then the Russians said, hey, that's great. Why don't we uh, get uh, Apple and Google to bar LinkedIn from the Russian app stores uh, uh, because we have not allowed LinkedIn into our uh, uh, territory? So they're they're enthusiastically finding all the leverage points that a new corporatized Internet uh, provides. Yes, I think that's right. But it also is going to demand kind of a different kind of dialogue than is going on right now about everybody, you know, about angry populists throwing rocks at Google Joining and Facebook um, that that and instead figure out what is an, an American an American type of response to that type of request to censor and prohibit what we would see as you know free expression in foreign markets. I, it's going to be a tough one. Uh, part of this is Silicon Valley's fault because they spent the whole 1990s telling us, oh, this is going to be wonderful without any action by government at all. Freedom and democracy are going to spread around the world because our technology is inherently open, free, decentralized and democratic. Uh, and uh, if you just let us go out and make a whole bunch of money, uh, you'll get all those good things for free. Uh, and that turns out not to be true. Uh, and now the question is, how are we going to fight for those things? And, and that's, uh, um, you know, the, the 
the job of the internet, or at least the effect of the internet, is to ask us again about everything we thought we valued. Do you really care enough, and do you care enough to fight about it? And we obviously don't care enough to fight about it when it comes to pornography, for example. We just gave up. Uh, and uh, the real question is, do we care enough to fight for security and uh, uh, protection of our uh citizenry from uh, extortion by foreign governments. And our vision of free expression and and free values. Right, and tough, tough there. I'm not sure we've persuaded the French or the Germans uh, uh, of that. Uh, um, a, a, but there's really, there's really nothing new here. I mean, this issue has been around for as long as the, the Internet, and, you know, companies ultimately uh, resort to the line that they have to comply with local laws if they want to operate locally. Um, and it, it's hard to argue with that proposition, you know. Uh, yeah. So unless we expect Apple and Google not to be in China, not to be in Russia, they're going to have to comply with those countries' laws. Yeah, I would um, be happy and, if and they would they, say they'd comply with U.S. law too. Uh, uh, instead of, of this being the one place where they want to lobby their pre- preferred outcome uh, uh, into law, and el- everywhere else they just say, "Oh well, you know, different strokes for different folks." Right, fair enough. I mean, we certainly don't hear about them, uh, you know, fighting Rush, the Russian law or appealing the Chinese determinations. Um, but maybe, you know, in their, uh, uh, uh to their, uh, you know, argument that they, they see that as being fruitless and it, and it probably is, whereas at least they have a fighting chance, uh, to, to fight, um, U.S. legislative and regulatory requirements. So here's my, here's my question for you. What's the over under on how soon before, um, the, the real Donald Trump's uh, Twitter account is hacked. Uh, Twitter says they don't have any special security measures whatsoever for uh, uh, celebrities uh, or the president of the United States. Uh, uh, I cannot believe that it isn't going to be possible to uh, extract his credentials and use them. And it could be a very big deal because, um, you know, his tweets um, it, it's not hard to sound like him, and a, there's almost nothing where you could say, oh, I'm sure he didn't say that. Well, I, I think the over-under is it's owned already. The question is more it's a one-time use thing, right? Yes. You use it, you have an impact, and then it's over. So I think the over-under is more when does that happen, when, not when, do we when are those credentials that they've owned. Yes. It. Uh, yes, because they're undoubtedly saying, hey, look, I can I can see these tweets before they are released if I if I have compromised the system, and therefore I can trade or take action based on them, uh, I, and wouldn't I be better off doing that than using this one-time opportunity? Which the report is very clear about, that typically – the GRU or the FSB or former or you know other S you know all the other acronym soup that the that the Russians and the Soviets had is is first and foremost aimed at trying to understand the the inner mechanisms of the other leaders' minds. Then it's aimed at spreading the propaganda. So whether it's the draft tweets, the, the direct messages, um, anything else, that's. That's more valuable, I guess, at this point until we, they determine that something, that the use of those credentials is more valuable. All right. A quick, uh, uh, quick hits. Uh, I see LabMD got five or six amicus briefs in, su- in their uh, support uh, in the 11th Circuit. Uh, uh, Michael, I thought that was uh, an impressive uh, show of uh, strength. 
Yeah, I think it was it was in, uh, almost invited by the, um, the by the circuit's uh, favorable decision on the on the issue of uh, staying the the FTC's order pending the outcome of the appeal. Um, you know, it made it look like there's a very good chance LabMD will win, uh, and so I think I think uh, you know people like the Chamber of Commerce uh, and and other groups of companies decided that that it was worth weighing in. This wasn't this wasn't a lost cause. And I have to say, uh, uh, after uh, I'm, I'm delighted to welcome Lawfare to uh, uh, the uh, party. They have started to raise questions about uh, why it is that the uh, uh, adequacy rule in the European Union has only been applied to the United States and the Faroe Islands, uh, and that uh, nobody is asking the question of uh, what about exports of data to China and Russia? Uh, uh, is it the case that their internal security systems and handling of uh, data and due process rules are more comfortable and compatible with European law, or is it just that the uh, uh, Europeans are afraid to look? Or, or as maybe our earlier conversation pointed out, maybe the the Western governments have, have gotten a little bit too used too used to staring at their own navels and and or not, our navels, maybe. Yes, well, that, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's right. Well, uh, the Europocracy Prize uh, remains to be funded. Anybody who uh, shares my view that uh, it's high time that uh, uh, Europe's other trading partners got uh, the same scrutiny the U.S. has gotten for the last 20 years should uh, uh, make a pledge to the Europocracy Prize on Indiegogo's site. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Alan, I don't know if you looked at this. Uh, Mike Masnick is getting sued for libel from by a guy who claims to have invented Invented email, uh, and Masnick, who is, you know, he is kind of a jerk. Uh, I say that because he's assembled an entire page on um, why he hates Stuart Baker, which he adds to on a regular basis. Uh, but I, I, I've never thought he was uh, somebody who lied, right? He just has very strong views and expresses them very colorfully. Uh, mostly about how evil I am, and apparently how evil this guy is, who didn't, in, in Masnick's point of, uh, from Masnick's point of view, actually uh, invent email. Uh, I would not have thought that, having seen his stuff, that he looks like a great candidate for a libel uh, uh, case. Uh, uh, so this may be it's the same lawyer who went after Hulk Hogan. Uh, I think we're seeing a little boomlet in uh, libel lawsuits that are really STFU lawsuits. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the, the Gawker-Hulk Hogan lawsuit may have opened the floodgates on this. Now, it's it remains to be seen how the courts will react yep. to that kind of thing. But at the very minimum, at least now, you can sue as well. Oh, well, that's that, that's comforting, Mike. I'm not coming for you. Uh, 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 but if you could get off the first page of my Google uh, uh, searches, I would deeply appreciate it. Okay, well, why don't we get on to our interview? Because it also relates to the other uh, big uh, Washington news story of the week, which is that the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, uh, under the leadership of Jim Lewis, uh, has produced its um, report, a version of its report from 2000. 
8, which was advice to the new president on how to deal with cybersecurity, that report was a real uh, uh, success in terms of helping to set the agenda and point to the importance of the issue, uh, and it was relied on to a significant degree by the new administration. Uh, hoping to do that again, CSIS has put together an East Coast team and a West Coast team to write a long and detailed and uh, pretty good, uh, um, certainly in terms of diagnosis, uh, uh, report on the current cybersecurity policy issues that we need to be addressing. Uh, and here to talk about it are two leaders uh, from the West Coast team, Davis Hake, uh, who was the director of cybersecurity strategy at Palo Alto Networks. Uh, he had a long history in uh, Washington as well, uh, and who has uh, naturally, uh, as anybody with cybersecurity in their title would do, has uh, moved on to, to a startup uh, that's still in stealth mode. Uh, and uh, joining him uh, a little um, in the middle of the program, uh, uh, I'm not sure she'll be able to get here right at the start, uh, is Nico Stell, who's the co-founder and CEO of Wicker, which is a security, uh, secure messaging company. Uh, Company, uh, and both of them contributed uh, heavily to the Cyber Policy Task Force on the West Coast. So, uh, Davis? Hey, thanks, Stuart. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, so let's jump right into the report. Uh, it's it's really detailed. It's uh, um, surprisingly well written in spots, uh, especially early on as it's doing diagnosis. And the diagnosis, I have to say, on the whole, as with uh, all things cybersecurity is uh, more compelling than the uh, prescription, uh, uh, which is a lot harder to to be to get right. Uh, um, but what would you say are the three or four headline items, or would you rather we just walk through uh, the twelve or so uh, um, headings that are in the report and talk about each one? Yeah, no, thanks. Um, as you noted about the prescription. We were really lucky to have Jim Lewis once again here captaining the ship on this. Um, you know, I, I was actually involved in the 2008 report, um, and I appreciate you saying it was, it was impactful. Um, this was something that was sort of a core piece in, in my career working early on on the Hill for Congressman Langevin, who was a co-chair back then, um, along with Congressman McCall, who's, a, who's another co-chair now. Yep. And sort of the main idea was that, you know, when this report was being written, the 44th president, it was, you know, whoever took the office, um, these recommendations should be followed. And one of the key things that both members agreed to was that, you know, we should do everything we can to keep cybersecurity a bipartisan issue. And so when we started this effort two years ago, one of the things that Jim thought would be really important would be to have not just sort of the traditional policy centers, um, the folks in, in D.C. that, that I, I worked with, um, but also folks out uh, in industry, too, to have a real strong voice. Um, and so Samir Balotra uh, led the West Coast Task Force out here. Uh, we were incredibly lucky to have um, some of the top thinkers out here in cybersecurity doing cool stuff with startups, but also more established companies as well, um, advising out here too. Um, so on the West Coast group, you know, you talked about some of the, the major points and highlights. We really were pretty strategic about finding four sort of core things that we thought that the private sector should really weigh in on. Uh, and those were sort of first and foremost um, protecting sort of the baseline security of our critical infrastructure, uh, which was something that, you know, we've been talking about since, uh, you know, I don't know, as long as cybersecurity has been around. Yep. Um, the second one was, you know, how to accelerate uh, the workforce development. And so we looked at a couple different tools, 
that we can use there. Uh, this has also been something out. Karen Evans, who's also on the commission, has been incredibly passionate about over the years. Um, we looked at data protection. So not just uh, what do we do about privacy policies that we write down and, and then, you know, try to comply with, but actually how do we try and protect that real user data and what are we doing with it? Um, and the last one, then, too, is looking at a code of conduct for vulnerability disclosure. You know, this is an issue that the last administration worked on, had a lot of good conversations with the security research community. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of the folks out here, a lot of the companies are using bug bounty programs to really make their products better. And I think that that could really, that market could benefit from some direct moves by the next administration to really kind of cement in the ground um, that this is a model that, that really should be done for people's cybersecurity and help drive this market. That's great. I, and, and why don't we walk through those? Because I think that those are useful. And then if we get a chance, we'll come back because there's plenty of other stuff here. Active defense, encryption policy, uh, that you didn't uh, talk to. Do it, deal. Uh, you know, the boxology of the executive branch. Uh, uh, but uh, your discussion of those four issues shows that this is a pretty granular report, that it it gets down to issues that we're talking about on a weekly or monthly basis and it brings people up to speed on what the debate is about. Uh, and let me start with the baseline security stuff. Uh, everybody would agree our baseline security ought to be better. I think the question is, how are we going to do that? Uh, what is it that will actually produce better baseline security? Uh, now that we've got the uh, cybersecurity framework out, uh, uh, people are using it. It's a surprisingly successful um, uh, effort to uh, get everybody talking on, in the same language, uh, but it doesn't actually require you to do much. Uh, it, uh, it just requires you to use the right words when you say you're not doing something. Yeah, so I, it's... Everybody agrees, right? Like you said, we need better baseline security. And, and my old boss, Michael Daniel, I think said it best when he really said that this is an economic problem, right? It, it's not a problem that we don't know how to solve. It's a problem of, of how do we get the right levers to actually solve it. Um, and, you know, I think one of the opportunities uh, missed um, by the Congress last uh, over the last couple of years was to look at, you know, how do we sort of harmonize those existing regulations that are out there and how do we sort of set costs Help companies set costs to their risk. So, um, so what, you know, you're, what, you're really, what you're really talking about is, yeah. is using the existing regulatory authority, and much of the critical infrastructure is subject to some kind of uh, regulation, power, uh, telecom, uh, uh, and the like. Uh, so uh, trying to get um, regulators to use their authority to bring a cybersecurity baseline to those infrastructures <laughs> that they already regulate for other purposes? Yeah, and so this is what was one of the key goals in this framework, right? And I think one of the things looking forward, it can be really, really hopeful on, um, you know, providing sort of that standard, which is not a technical standard, but requires companies, um, and also helps grow a market of services around that, of helping companies identify and, and cost and price their own risk is going to be really important. Um, and so we've seen, you know, the cyber insurance market move from an entity that was, you know, sort of largely just offering policies to only big companies to now kind of really looking at expanding cybersecurity insurance almost into the same type of idea that you have to get general liability insurance. Um, and so I think that as that happens, as the market gets more competitive, and as we start seeing more claims being filed, you're going to see a lot of these insurance companies really move towards risk-based pricing um, more and more than they already are and looking for new tools to do that. 
I mean, and also at the same time, it's going to make companies really look at their own investments and in security. Right. And figure out through their own business models what they need to do well, for, you know, for their own interest. Yeah, I, 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 I hear from a lot of new companies and there are companies that are devoted to telling people how they're doing under the cybersecurity framework, but there are a lot of companies that uh, sort of look at you from the outside and look at a whole host of uh, externally measurable uh, elements like uh, how long does it take you to uh, actually patch known vulnerabilities and the like, and they can give you a score based on that. Uh, so there's actually there's actual risk data now that uh, the uh, insurance companies can use. Yeah, you're seeing this field really mature, right? There's external and internal type factors that you can use to get a whole picture and um, you know kind of help companies identify what technical controls are in place. But, you know, it's also important to understand, you know, business processes and also training that's going on inside and, and how well your team's doing. But all of these types of, you know, factors that companies look at kind of go into that overall understanding of their risk, which sort of drives us back to the economics of the problem. And one of the other interesting sides of this that we looked at in baseline security, uh, something, you know, my, the CEO at Palo Alto Networks, Mark McLaughlin, was really big on. Uh, and he was really saying, too, that cybercrime is, you know, an economic problem right on the other side. So we're looking at it from the NIST framework as an economic problem on defense, but it's also, you know, attackers, even nation-state attackers, have some form of, of economic drive to do this. And, and if you sort of look at this from that perspective, then you can start to think about your defenses as raising the cost for the attacker at every point. Um, and I think that that's a, a good way to sort of look at this. And once you sort of look at your risk posture, you kind of look at how can I make myself a less attractive target. Yeah, so from I, a policy standpoint, you know, we talk a lot about that for cybercrime. And what can we do to devalue the data? What can we do to sort of find new cooperation models uh, to bring in countries like India and Brazil that uh, have currently not been in a large of the international cooperative agreements um, to kind of also raise the cost for the attackers? So I would say the criticism that I would have of this report is that it is a little bit least common denominator. It's uh, it's the stuff that all the bien pensants of uh, Silicon Valley and Washington can agree on. Uh, uh, and that means there's a certain amount of political correctness uh, in it. Uh, but one area where, when you were talking about raising the cost, where I thought that the report deviates from PC-ness, uh, or maybe it, maybe the PC uh, uh, understanding has changed, is where you said uh, uh, we need to have uh, uh, multi-factor authentication and mechanisms uh, to reduce anonymity and improve attribution. Now, for 15 years, EFF and uh, all those other guys have said, uh, oh, my God, anonymity, it's next to godliness. Uh, um, and I wonder if that uh, the recommendation here is a sign that that um, received wisdom is starting to look a little threadbare in, in Silicon Valley. The report was made up by a lot of different parties on the East and West Coast, too. So there are some topics in there, as you noted, that sort of deviate from the norm and aren't necessarily – um, the view of, of everybody within the commission. Um, but actually, I think Nico uh, would be good about talking about this topic as well. So Nico, uh, who, who had to join us late, uh, uh, I was saying that the report 
uh, contains a lot of um, sort of uh, standard issue PC uh, talk from Silicon Valley in Washington about uh, um, public-private uh, uh, relationships and the like. Uh, uh, so it, it doesn't break a lot of ground, as you'd expect from something that has so many participants and had to proceed by a kind of rough consensus. But uh, there is a provision in the uh, report that says we need a lot less anonymity and a lot more attribution, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Uh, And I was wondering whether this is a sign that uh, people are getting a little sick of the EFF's claim that anonymity is next to godliness. Oh, well, um, you know what? I think he's going to have both, Stuart. Um, You know, I think that this idea of attribution is really important for um, deterrence, right, and really knowing who's attacking us and when, but I don't, I think that there are still ways to do that and make the EFF happy. Well, uh, I've never found a way to make them happy other than total surrender, but we'll see. <laughs> okay, uh, and so we, we, we have been walking through the, uh, uh, the report's recommendations with some focus on the West Coast uh, uh, recommendations. Uh, we covered improving baseline security, and uh, the next uh, idea was uh, workforce, uh, 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 getting a workforce that can do cybersecurity, and uh, everybody would agree that that's something we need to do. I've always thought that the, you know, there's a, there was a Brown student who said to me uh, uh, once, well, let's face it in this field. Uh, you're either self-taught or you aren't any good. Um, and, and that always struck me as true, uh, that the people who are in cybersecurity got in there uh, not by as, uh, assembling credentials, but because they were willing to learn new things. Um, a, a, what, uh, beyond uh, encouraging people to go out and learn new things, uh, uh, what is it we could do to improve our uh, workforce? Well, Stuart, I guess I came in at the perfect time because um, on the West Coast, I chaired, co-chaired the Workforce Acceleration Committee with Raj Shah, who heads up the DOD out here in Silicon Valley. And um, and I think this part of the report really does have some breakthrough recommendations. And um, some parts that are really close to my heart is the recommendation that we start teaching everyone how to hack. Because while we often hear hacking, you know, along the lines with bad actors, we need to remember that hacking is really the most important and powerful skill set for the future of the world here. And we need to have the best hackers in the world on our team. This is how we can defend our nation most effectively. And this is also how we can get kids interested in cybersecurity. Because if you say to a group of kids, who wants you go into the career of security or privacy, you get very few people that raise your hand. But if you if you tell them they can break stuff and and (laughs) violate the law, they'll be much more enthusiastic. Well, Stuart, this is not about breaking the law, and you know that. We work very closely, again, with the EFF to make sure that we hack ethically. And this is about teaching everyone how these systems work and really understanding them so that we don't make the kind of negligent mistakes that are being made by manufacturers and government all over the place right now. And this is how we can get a passionate workforce and get everyone really interested on this topic. And we think that it's really important. 
the 46th president focus on this? So uh, one of the things I occasionally reference is a great psychological study, uh, which has also been uh, uh, borne out by several uh, uh, Hollywood movies, uh, which shows that there are profound psychological differences between offensive linemen and linebackers. Uh, Offensive linemen are the guys, the 300-pound guys that uh, prevent the quarterback from being sacked, uh, and linebackers are the defensive players who are supposed to do the sacking. Uh, and uh, offensive linebackers are all into defending, protecting, uh, uh, not, nothing should happen. They don't want anything new to happen. And linebackers are just kind of crazy jumping around. Uh, let's, let's make something happen. Uh, um, and it, it has always struck me that a big part of being a successful hacker is having the right personality. You really do want to, you have to have a personality that says, I would like to, f- to screw this up. I'd like to get in there and show just how bad this is. Uh, I, and it, maybe we just need to find people with those personalities and focus them on something um, uh, valuable to society. Well, you know what I see a little bit more. I mean, some of that, but I think of it more as just the really creative people in the world that want to look at something and find other ways to use it. And that's really where, um, you know, we get the best hackers in the world. And why kids are so good at hacking is because they love understanding how a lock that they use every day works. Right. I mean, that's really empowering. I, I, so I, 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 I just bought a transparent plastic uh, padlock for a seven year old grandchild so those. so that he could <laughs> learn to, ha- to or he could learn to pick the lock. Uh, so, yes, I, I, I know the fascination well. Awesome, and that's so important, Stuart. Everyone should be doing that for their grandkids like you're doing because, you know, it's not magic understanding how a lock works. And the same thing goes for these cell phones that we have. And you know what? All the IoT toys out there that we're developing. Right now, society is in tremendous risk. And we don't, how did we get here? Because we're building things that we don't understand. And we really need to, you know, sit back and understand what we're building all the way from the hardware. Right. I, I, you know, I, 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 I want to push you, both you and Davis on uh, the uh, whether these things work in an IoT world uh, because um, it makes sense to devote a lot of high-paid talent to try to figure out uh, what the Windows operating system's flaws might be and to fix them. Um, and Microsoft's got the money to do that, and they're making a lot of money uh, uh, off of their operating systems and, and office systems. Uh, but the guys who are putting together um, uh, the world's cheapest routers and uh, home cameras are never going to have the money to do a good job on that. And yet, as they proliferate, uh, they're basically little Linux machines online capable of doing all the damage that uh, computers used to do. Uh, I just, I don't see how um, getting a better workforce focused on security or even raising cybersecurity standards uh, uh, in the baseline it helps us get at those problems, but maybe you have an idea. Uh, well, I think it very much does because you know. Oh, go ahead, Davis. No, I was uh, I was going to agree. I think like so. Part of the the baseline security standards is not just setting a level for everybody that they can achieve, but it's actually getting everybody to think about 
their cyber risk, right, as a part of what they do every day. And that's what we really mean about baseline. And IoT presents, as you said, sort of a new uh, economic problem we have to look at, right, because of the, the low cost of these devices. It doesn't always make sense to, to spend, you know, the same type of, of effort securing them as they go to market. And I think that we've traditionally sort of thought about this problem as, you know, the connected car or, you know, the home system that can be hacked um, and can be accessed by an attacker to achieve a physical effect. And one of the things that we really thought about from Homeland Security is not just how does cyber affect physical, but how can things in the physical environment affect back on, you know, the resources we use on the online, on the Internet. And so I think, like, the future of IoT and the problems that we really need to start thinking about, too, is this issue of trust in these devices. We're not going to be able to always secure all these devices. You know, what type of level of trust should they be given? I think we saw with the Dyn attacks um, that that type of effort can go both ways. That these physical devices, you said, can sort of be flipped on the head and be a much bigger risk towards the systems that they connect to. Yeah, I you know, I, here's my problem. I think if you if you said to consumers, uh, you can have this dirt cheap, crappy security uh, uh, camera, uh, uh, or you could have one that won't attack, that won't randomly attack. Uh, um, uh, people who uh, have pissed off uh, 4chan, um, and it'll cost you three times as much, I think they're going to buy the cheap one. Stuart, I really like what we saw just recently with the FTC starting to take action against some of the manufacturers yep. of these companies. Um, and I think that, you know, that really what we need to look at is changing the attitude so that manufacturers have incentive to think from the ground up about putting security in. And and that's what we need to start doing with all these IoT devices because especially, I mean, there's tons of startups out here right now that don't have that as a priority, but there are ways in which we can make that a priority. So you, you, and it you, starts with culture and thinking about engaging with hackers right away when you yeah. start to build something. I, I, I agree with you. Uh, uh, you brought up the FTC case against D-Link, and there's some other stuff probably pending. Uh, um, and uh, you're right that that's one way to get people to focus on security is if they know there are regulators out there that are going to press them. Uh, I I have to say um, the FTC doesn't strike me as a very good security regulator, and you guys were very, very kind to the FTC in your report. But, uh, you know, they they do security the way lawyers do security. They say, here's some general rules, and uh, if you get in the papers and screw up uh, for screwing up, uh, we'll come get you. Whereas what NIST produced was a much more detailed, far more detailed and far more useful to people who actually want to improve their security than the guidance that the FTC puts out. Because I think the FTC, which just sort of camped out on the privacy issue without any particular legal authority, uh, uh, may have gotten to the point where its role in security is um, uh, much more influential than their competence suggests they should have. Uh, and their independence makes them an awkward um, uh, partner with the rest of the government. I mean, they have no national security responsibilities, and yet this is a big national security issue. Davis, I know you saw this when you were working for Michael Daniel. Uh, um, does it really make sense to have the FTC doing our security standards and enforcing them the way they are? Yes, I think you know NIST was the absolute right body to pull together the cybersecurity framework. Um, and so, you know, the experts and the, the keepers of the keys for 
sort of what we define as government standards and best practices. They put together an excellent framework. Um, but I think, you know, it's one of the things that we really looked at through the presidential executive order that put forward the framework was the harmonization of existing regulators to start using those types uh, of best practices that NIST put together, right? So how do you do, how do you, you know, do that? I think NIST is how, still, how, how do you yeah. do that if if they're in de- if they you know can stand on their independence and yet this is a national security issue? Why well, it's, uh, it's tricky. Yeah, no, it's it is difficult, right? But I, I think that having the framework out there as a baseline that um, not just regulators but also uh, the market like insurance companies can point to as the standards of best technical practice is a good step forward in, in how we sort of look at this from a risk standpoint. But I think that the main thing that regulators today are looking for is, you know, are companies doing their homework, right? As are, do they have those processes in place to look at their own risk and then try and meet it? I think the instances that we've seen folks get uh, on the wrong side of the FTC has really been in cases where, you know, they either claimed that they were doing their homework and they weren't, um, like in Wyndham, um, or areas where they're just not looking at it at all, right? And so I think the, what this kind of messaging says is that cybersecurity is going to be an evolving technical issue, but the idea of incorporating cyber risk into your bottom line and the idea of protecting your customers is going to be something that, just like safety standards, cyber should be a part of. So I got a, I, I should say I got a note from uh, somebody at the FTC gloating at the fact that the uh, Cable Association had uh, um, uh, attacked the FCC's privacy rules and said you really ought to embrace the uh, effective and um, uh, uh, wonderful uh, uh, approach taken by the FTC. And, and I, I, I want to acknowledge that. But uh, uh, here's my question. Have, has the FTC ever said word one about the cybersecurity framework? It's almost as though they, they say, well, that's not invented here. We're not going to talk about it. Yeah, so I think, as you said, they are not the technical experts on the framework, right? Um, but I think what we looked at was the framework was a, a broader set um, for not just FTC, but uh, other regulators, too. I think, you know, New York State, when their recent regulations pointed towards the framework, that was really our goal for it to be a guide for people that were looking to set technical standards to have that sort of match of technical standards. I think everybody, everybody but the regulator that, the, that, that most companies fear most has got on board with the framework. And, and so the FTC's silence on this issue is uh, sort of telling and, and smacks a little, as does their criticism of the FCC, of, uh, you know, we're the best, na na na, and maybe a little bit of insecurity about that status. Uh, but I was, I, I think it's disappointing, and it, it, it suggests that this administration wasn't in a position to say to the FTC, you need to get on board with the cybersecurity framework and make them central to your jurisprudence as well. And if they can't get them to do that, then there's something wrong with having the FTC as our principal security regulator. All right. So let me let me uh, uh, jump to another topic, which is zero vulnerabilities, and then we'll wrap up because uh, uh, we're probably already a little over our time. Uh, uh, I thought that was a, a, an interesting uh, uh, report uh, uh, endorses bug bounties, which I think most people think is a good idea, uh, and uh, uh, comes out in favor of responsible disclosure and not suing security researchers, as as Nico said earlier in the uh, uh, in the uh, the podcast. Anything else that I'm missing? Those are all my favorite points, Stuart. What do you think? 
I, I, I actually agree with both of those, but I'm representing somebody uh, who did uh, security research and was sued by the subject of the security research for libel, for defamation and, and uh, uh, disparagement of uh, uh, trademark, uh, uh, which I think it translates to STFU. Uh, so I, uh, I, I think you missed one of the ways in which uh, uh, liability can descend upon security researchers, which is just that they'll, they'll be called liars by somebody with a much bigger budget than they have. Um, or just even the chilling effect, right, of, of that threat, right? We oh, all, absolutely. You know, I know myself, too. You know, it's, it's a big deal when you have to go to disclose one of these. You have to have lawyers to back you up to say what you want to say. Yes, I, I, absolutely. And and now you have to think pretty hard about uh, what your defamation defenses are, at least until we kick St. Jude's butt in, in court, uh, which I fully expect we will do. Uh, um, so... Other topics that were covered in this that uh, uh, that we need to uh, uh, discuss. Uh, there was a lot in here. It, it really is. Uh, if you want to get a current view of hot cybersecurity policy and technical issues, uh, you can't do better than to read it for the identification of the problem. And if you want to know what the more or less standard. Uh, thoughtful response is, but not a lot of uh, really groundbreaking uh, views. Uh, the policy prescriptions here are pretty good as well. I appreciate you, uh, you know, plugging us as, as the thoughtful response. Uh, you know, as I said back uh, earlier, you know, we really looked at the, the first report as the guidepost for, you know, in Congress for what were the topics we should tackle, right? And it became a lot of the beginning of the discussion, sort of just as you um, laid it out. And that's sort of what we're expecting here and what we've done is to lay out a roadmap forward for the issues that, uh, you know, we wanted to address for the last eight years, but maybe weren't completely addressed, as well as some of the new issues to update policymakers on, like you said, what are the topics and what's, you know, the current state of the um, discussion. And then sort of from the members in the East Coast policy community and the West Coast business community, what's sort of largely a lot of the consensus position um, so that legislators can, can take it from there. Well, Nico and Davis, I really do appreciate the amount of time you, you guys have put on, in on this and the amount of thought you put in on it. Uh, it was it was a very public-spirited thing to do. Uh, and I guess I know what you'll be doing eight years from today, huh? I hope we look back and see that uh, every agency has uh, a team of hackers and bug bounties galore. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, well, we, uh, uh, I think it was Esther Dyson who said, always make new mistakes. Uh, I, I think we can guarantee that eight from years from now we'll be talking about new mistakes in cybersecurity and new cures for them. So uh, thanks to Davis Haik. Uh, thanks to Nicosel. Uh, uh, this has been uh, the Cyber Law Podcast, Episode 145, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, we have an exciting upcoming 27. Uh, and if you've got a particular uh, uh, interviewee to suggest uh, uh, and they come on the show, uh, we will send you one of the highly coveted and extraordinarily rare Steptoe Cyber Law podcast mugs complete with logo. Uh, uh, we hope you'll join us uh, for uh, next week's episode as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.